Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host Ryan Heath, author of Politico's Brussels Playbook column. It's been a strange week, frankly. For me it was great. I've been down in Lisbon, Portugal for the last three days at Web Summit. That's the biggest tech event in the world where gadgets meet politics. The big themes there were man versus machine, and while countries like the UK and Portugal both lost their empires decades ago, they were the ones making a big play for new digital empires. Elsewhere in Europe, it was a bit odd. The UK government is just lurching from drama to drama, ones that we can't really predict. The German government coalition talks are going nowhere fast, and here in Brussels, there's been a lot of veiled threats from all sides around whether the weed killer glyphosate should be approved for continued use. But first, we're going to turn to Kyriakos Mitsotakis for our feature interview this week. He's the leader of the opposition in Greece. For the centre-right New Democracy Party that held power until early 2015, when Greeks kicked out the establishment and elected the radical Syriza government of Alexis Tsipras. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Mitsotakis. Thank you. Thank you for having me. A lot of people, they're skeptical of Greece as a result of what's gone on over the last 10 years. You're telling me that Greece is reformable and that you have a plan to do it. Yeah, well, to a certain extent, I understand the skepticism uh, regarding Greece. Uh, Greece was the first country that uh, entered into a program, and it's still the only uh, European country that is in a program. Uh, the crisis has been going on now for seven years. Uh, unfortunately, the economy found itself again in a recession in 2016. As uh, Europe is growing at a good pace, Greece is really struggling to catch up. Having said that, I do need to point out that back in 2014, uh, we were very close to actually exiting the program and, and turning the corner, and if it were not for, for the current government. And that was back when your party, New and Democracy, was still, New Democracy was still in government. was still in power. At the time, the economy was growing. We had started to lower taxes. There was a general sense of optimism. We had already negotiated at the time a precautionary credit line. There was a general sense that things were moving in the right direction. Unfortunately, we lost three years, and that is the cost of the current government. No matter how you count it, it is uh, it's probably anywhere close to 100 billion uh, euros. If you just look at our GDP numbers, where we could have been and where we currently are, there is a, a GDP gap of 
close to 30 billion euros. If you just look at the projections of the European Commission back in 2014, they were predicting at the time that the economy would grow at 2.9 and 3.6% in 2015, 2016. Mm -hmm. We had a recession in both years. So we paid a very heavy bill for experimenting with Mr. Tsipras. But uh, again, this is, is, I think Greeks uh, understand, uh, understand this. They're looking for a credible political alternative. Uh, and right now, my, my main agenda is, is to convince, first of all, the Greek population mm-hmm. that A, Greece is reformable, B, we should embrace a bold reform agenda, and we should own the reform agenda, and that this reform agenda is good for the country, uh, and is not a reform agenda that we need to implement by necessity because it is imposed by our creditors. This is a, a very central theme of, of my narrative. And is it big ticket items like we're going to change the tax system completely to get more people paying those taxes? Or is it smaller things? You've had a big track record in public administration reform. I think it's, um, it's a little bit of everything. First of all, there's an issue of seriousness, competence, professionalism in governance and government, which for me is a big issue. You know, I'm a liberal by definition. I want a smaller and more efficient uh, government. Uh, I want to streamline public spending. Uh, I want to cut taxes. I want to make Greece an attractive investment destination. So all the issues that, if you just look at, you know, the World Economic Forum ranking, Mm -hmm. why isn't Greece an attractive investment destination today? You know, the problem also highlights uh, the solution. Highly bureaucratic uh, licensing Mm -hmm. process in place, which I intend to grossly streamline, a complicated tax code, uh, which I also intend Mm -hmm. to greatly simplify, and also to start uh, reducing uh, tax rates, privatizations that never move in the right direction, Mm -hmm. lots of roadblocks within the public administration that I. Because Greeks are known as being very entrepreneurial. If I think of uh, Greece, you know, beyond the beautiful islands and the the sun that you give to the world, like I think of Greeks as very entrepreneurial people. So well, it's uh, surprising that it's not it's, allowed I out. I think you're right to, po- to, to point out there is a lot of dynamism in Greece today, in spite of the crisis. There is a resurgence in entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. which I find extremely encouraging. Lots of young Greeks who want to set up their own businesses rather than finding a cozy job with the public administration. So there has been a change in attitude in Greece, and I think the underlying trends in Greek society are very much in favor of our agenda. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's a perception, which to a certain extent is, uh, is true, that there is a, an oligarchy, a business oligarchy mm-hmm. in Greece, that there are barriers to entry, mm-hmm. that product markets have not been liberalized. These issues need to be addressed, and I'm going to be you know, very bold in making sure that there is a level playing field uh, for everyone. I don't want you know, foreign investors to feel that they necessarily need to team up with a prominent Greek political family to mm-hmm. do business in Greece, or that they need to own, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, a TV channel or a, or yeah. a media outlet. That's not the way things uh, should or need to function in Greece. Now, I had dinner last night with some young Europeans, so people from all over the place. And the, the group I ended up talking to at the end of the night were a group of young Greeks. And I said, I'm interviewing the man who could be your next prime minister tomorrow. Like, what do you want me to ask him? And they said, you know, they're open to you as prime minister was what they said. But they said, like, why would he be different? You know, he comes from the same party that was in power for a long time. He comes from a famous political family himself. You know, like, make him tell us why he'd be different. Yeah, I think that's, first of all, it's a fair question. Uh, because I do come from a political family. Um, having said that, my career is not the typical career of a professional politician. Uh, I was educated in the US and I spent 10 years working in the private sector before I entered politics. 
At the same time, I'm also considered a, a bold reformer within my own party. Mm-hmm. So I am changing my own party. Uh, and this sometimes, I'll be very honest with you, is causing friction. Yeah. Uh, and you weren't expected to win when you ran for I the ran, leadership, I were ran, you? I was a complete outsider. Nobody thought I could win. Mm-hmm. Not a single uh, MP from my parliamentary group uh, supported my candidacy. I, I don't want to give a Jeremy Corbyn analogy here, but it sounds a bit like Jeremy Corbyn but on the I, I, on the right. I came uh, I came from uh, from nowhere, but I did manage to in an open primary. I did manage to mobilize a lot of people who do not belong uh, to my party, and I make the case to my party that I received a clear mandate to change the party. What does changing a party mean? First of all, it means getting a new talent and new people, being open to new policy ideas, and uh, streamlining our our basic sort of. Uh, ideological proposition with what is necessary today in Greek society. I, I do want to move my party to, towards the political center. I'm, I'm very clear on that yeah. uh, on that front. That's where I think elections are always uh, won uh, and lost. So my effort to modernize the party is sometimes causing friction. Mm-hmm. That means I'm moving in the right mm-hmm. direction and we've taken a lot of initiatives to bring in new talent. So we have an open registry for people. We ask people to just send us their CV and mm-hmm. a little, you know, a YouTube video of why they want to get involved in mm-hmm. politics. We've interviewed through a formal interview process more than 1,500 mm-hmm. people who tell us that they want to get engaged in politics in one way or another. Yeah. They may want to be candidates or they may want to help mm-hmm. as technocrats. So I think I'm, I'm breaking up this image of new democracy mm-hmm. as an old, stale, traditional party, which, by the way, I think all mainstream uh, political parties mm-hmm. need to do. Uh, it's a bit like Emmanuel Macron, that opening up process. Y- yes, although... The, 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 Maybe not the ideologically, the but... He uh, started, started from, from scratch. Yes. Uh, he started his own, uh, his own yeah. party. I, uh, I'm very proud to be leader of Net Democratia. It's a party mm-hmm. that has contributed a lot, I think, to, to Greece. We should not forget that it was... Konstantinos Karamanis, our founder, who, who who pushed Greece into the European economic community at the time against the wish of the Greek population. Mm-hmm. Now, because of the economic situation, the, the program or the bailout, whatever uh, language is, is the best one to use, um, it kind of matters that people outside of Greece have confidence in you as well. So I want to do a little quick world tour there. Um, what do you think your relationship is like with people like Angela Merkel or those people who sit around the Eurogroup table and, and make decisions about is Greece finally out of this program? You know, can they have debt relief and so on? I think I have a very good, honest and transparent uh, relationship with the European leadership. And it is important for them to get to know me and for me to get to know them. And uh, I, I think I have avoided mistakes made by other Greek politicians when they were in the opposition. Mm-hmm. I'm clearly not overpromising. If anything, I'm presenting a very credible long-term reform program. I think that uh, European leaders and world leaders want you know, a credible, serious interlocutor mm-hmm. uh, uh, in Greece. And there's also another dimension. I don't just want to participate in this uh, debate about the new Europe that is shaping up by being uh, sort of the poster boy for Europe's problems. Mm -hmm. I think we have a lot of positive ideas to add to this discussion, especially when it comes to issues such as uh, common defense policy. And and you hit the Trump target for NATO. I mean, he makes a huge deal of hitting that target. We spend spend more than 2% on defense Mm -hmm. for uh, for obvious reasons. So I hope you didn't call him a liar. That might uh, be, uh, no, <laughs> that, no. that might undo some of the, the goodwill. Always, <laughs> always careful not to, not, not to intervene in campaigns 
by making any sorts of comments. But uh, Greece is a country that needs to be at the forefront of this new agenda uh, regarding uh, the common defense policy as it is uh, developed. So we want to contribute positively to this agenda. We don't just want to be you know, a country whose name pops up only because there is a crisis. And one final huge country I should mention, because we tend to forget it too often in Europe, China. They've just finished up their once every five years Communist Party Congress. It's a country with a 30-year plan now. Like it makes, sometimes I I look at what the EU does and even when it tries to do its two-year or its five-year plans and then China's got a 30-year plan, it's quite, quite incredible. And I know that the current Greek government has, you know, laid quite a few bets in, in trying to, to get Chinese investment into the country. What, what do you see as the role for, for, for China in Greece? Is it just one of many countries? Um, would you do it differently to the current government? It's, uh, look, Greece needs to attract uh, 100 billion in investment, foreign and domestic, over the next six to seven years. Mm-hmm. In my mind, China does not have any preferential uh, treatment. Mm-hmm. But to the extent that uh, Greek assets are up for sale and all processes are, are, are being followed, I'm not, uh, in, in principle, hostile to Chinese investment. I should point out that the Chinese have invested uh, in the port of Piraeus, and they have done uh, a good job. And they're doing huge infrastructure they works. Have, you look at the have, Silk but, Road. But, but, but they're not the only uh, investor yeah. in Greece, and, should, and they should not also be the only investor mm-hmm. in Greece. So I'll be very, very happy uh, if I can generate more uh, interest for European investment mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, in Greece. Uh, if anything, I want to see competition for Greek uh, assets, uh, and, and there is a lot of room to attract uh, investment from the US, but in particular from Europe. And I, I do spend a lot of my time talking to business chambers and mm-hmm. big uh, and big European corporates uh, about what it means to invest in Greece. And it doesn't always mean um, uh, you know, buying assets. It could mean setting up you know, a data center uh, yep. or a shared service center uh, in, in the region, mm-hmm. as certain European companies have done. We have extremely skilled and relatively cheap labor. Uh, and I can't imagine many nicer places to have a regional headquarters than mm-hmm. Greece. I don't think this, this government has either the will or the skill uh, to talk about uh, a private investment uh, and to embrace a liberal agenda because you know, when, they, when they come to Brussels, they may say we're committed to the program, but when we go back to Greece, there are always all sorts of, of problems created for any meaningful investment that is taking place in Greece. So you can't just speak two languages, you know, one language abroad and one language to your, you know, leftist radicals within the party. It doesn't work that mm-hmm. uh, that way. And so your big challenge in the election that I'm guessing will happen next year, but it could happen as late as 2019, is to really show to Greek voters that there are these two stories being told yeah. by the current government and to, and to win them over to your side. Who do you think will be the biggest threat for you in that election? Is it is it the current government? Is it this new centre-left movement that the mayor of Athens is trying to get forward? Is it the EU and the the, the, the threat of the, the bailout program and the restrictions that puts on your ability to make promises? I, I still think that uh, as much as as much as Tsipras tries to shift his party more towards the centre-left, it's going to be difficult to deliver on this agenda, but he's still the incumbent prime minister, and he is still my principal political opponent. Uh, and at the end of the day, people don't just vote for parties, they also vote for candidates for, for the job of prime minister. I don't know what will happen with the centre-left. They're in the process of looking for a new party leader, but I will refrain from making any comments. You know, I do hope that they, that they get their act together. The, the more parties we have that, in spite of our differences, are pro-European uh, and pro-reason, Uh, and against populism, uh, I think the better it will be for the quality of our democracy.
Kyriakos Mitsotakis, thank you very much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you. Thank you very much. And now it's time for our podcast panel. We're going to do our EU WTF moments, our EU thumbs up, and our Dear Politico advice session. Welcome back, Alva Finn. Hi, Ryan. And welcome, Lena Rabarus. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva. It's great to have you back on this exceptionally cloudy, grim morning in Brussels. And the best news for you guys listening is we're doing this on Thursday morning, so we are going to be completely on point this week. We normally do it on a Wednesday, but we're coming fresh out of the oven for you today. So... I'm nominating for EU WTF Mr. Gunter Oettinger, who is the commissioner from Germany here at the European Commission in Brussels, and he fought a rearguard action this week to block, stop, change, who knows really, a massive package of mobility legislation, which was designed to, for the first time, introduce things like emission limits for vans and trucks in Europe, uh, to push companies to develop more clean energy vehicles, so ones not run on fossil fuels. And Mr. Oettinger has been a longtime friend of the car industry, which, as we know, is based mostly in Germany, here in Europe. I'm wondering, ladies, what do you think could possibly have motivated his decision to force a discussion about this at the European Commission College of Commissioners? I think the implication is that he has national interests. And when you say when we say natural, national interests, we mean the huge German car industry. And I think this is a problem in general in Brussels, right? You have these commissioners or MEPs, etc., that are meant to be, well, not the MEPs, but the commissioners, really vested in the European you know, side of things. But they always have these underlying national interests at heart. So I think the implication really is, is he doing this so that when he goes back, even though it was a lost cause, is he doing this so that when he goes back to Germany, that he will, you know, still have friends in high places, maybe get a cabinet position. Maybe gar- next month even, because we still have coalition talks going on in Germany, don't we? Exactly. Well, possibly that as well. He's, he's securing his next job, whether it's in the government or don't forget many of the commissioners, they joined the private sector after, after a while. And possibly as well, he wanted some realistic time and realistic deadlines for, for the private sector in order to really deliver on all what the commission has, uh, has asked. So both, is it, is it good? Is it bad? We need to see. But um, we don't have the minutes yet. They, they yet. do take a week or two weeks sometime yeah. to deliver those minutes. But possibly as well, it could be like uh, he'll champion one of the private sector. Who knows? But the thing is, they weren't really even legally binding, right? So, you know, they're kind of aspirational. And 13 years, 13 years to hit some of these targets. Yeah, my view about all of this is that we just don't have the time to allow the private sector to acclimatise to the fact that we have climate change and it's a very real problem. They need to do it now. And I've always thought in my head, the only way that that's going to happen is proper regulation. This wasn't even regulation. So, like, how are we ever going to stop what is going to be apocalyptic future for the planet if we can't even get not legally binding carbon reduction emissions now yes but we're used that the commission sometimes uh, comes up with uh, incredible deadlines that are almost you cannot deliver on time so maybe 13 years or 10 years I, i understand that it's it's very urgent we have to do it we have to save the planet but 
let's as well look at the other side, that the experts, the industry itself, is being engaged in this conversation, which is something we always lack in talks with the Commission. Oh, they were very engaged. In fact, the German car makers called Martin Selmayr in the last couple of days before the debate yesterday. Okay, let's have a very quick mention of another WTF moment. We have in the last week had a second British cabinet minister resign for a bunch of fake and undeclared meetings with Israeli officials. And then, of course, we have Boris Johnson, who has really put his foot in it. I don't even think you could call it a gaffe, where he has mislabeled the trip of a journalist to Iran, and now she faces up to 10 years in prison for spreading propaganda, and the Iranian government were using Boris Johnson's comments to really ramp up the pressure in court on this woman. Yeah, when I was reading about the whole Patel thing, there was allegations that she also offered to spend UK aid, which is famously well spent, on uh, the Israeli army. On the Israeli army, which is very shocking. It's a very well-funded army already. Exactly. It gets so much money already from uh, the likes of the US. Um, so, yeah, that was r- really shocking. What a- and then and meeting- she ran onto a plane. Sorry, it gets even better. She literally ran away from the Houses of Parliament to get an early plane ahead of her colleague Liam Fox to the same meeting that they were going to in Uganda so that she would just literally be in the air when people wanted to ask her questions about this. They're keeping us entertained, I think, the British government. I mean, every week we have something like to to really either laugh. Uh, I think we, we reached a point that we cannot be shocked anymore and they're changing faces, so it keeps us busy. And the ongoing sexual harassment scandals, which has already taken a cabinet minister, I'm sure Theresa May is like... I already have so much on my plate with Brexit. What are all you idiots doing? But that is a little bit of a thumbs up to the British uh, system of democracy, I would say, because unlike about 20 countries in Europe, Britain is actually having a thorough debate about this now. And it's always a messy discussion, but at least someone has been held accountable for what's going on. And you don't see that really in places like Germany, for example. Yeah, but then you also think, like, is Theresa May really responding in the way that she should as a female prime minister? Uh, like I think she could have championed this and made it her own. It could be the other thing that she did apart from the poor Brexit prime minister. Uh, I think there's a missed opportunity, particularly from her. Let's turn for a second to an EU thumbs up moment. We've actually got one this week. That's great. Alva, you wanted to nominate the Paradise Papers. Yes, I think they're fascinating. So another big kind of cachet of documents that implies that... The world's rich and famous have been hiding their money in the Cayman Islands, the Isle of Man, a lot of actually British overseas territories, which is interesting. And everybody the Queen from, is supporting her empire, Alva. Yeah, the, the Queen has been implicated in it, uh, Lord Ashcroft. Uh, even I'm looking at, uh, at this from an Irish lens because I read the Irish news every morning. And they've also, yeah, lots of, lots of Irish people have been kind of caught up in this, including the actors of uh, Mrs. Brown's Boys, which is, uh, yeah, very... It's kind of this terrible sitcom. I kind of have some vague memory of never, ever wanting to watch it again. Yeah, I wouldn't be a fan of it either, but my mother watches it religiously. Uh, but like, it's, it's we kind can of... only pay you two euros, but if you put it into this offshore account, it can become four. Yeah, and I think they kind of were, they didn't really understand what was going on as well, which doesn't surprise me about the actors, to be honest. But yeah, I find this whole thing fascinating. I was always very fascinated by the Panama Papers, the LuxLeaks, 
And the EU is actually trying to do something good here on tax avoidance, aren't they? Yes, Especially exactly. Next week they have the uh, the tax havens, the Black ECOFIN meeting. Yeah. Some of the countries more associated with yeah. this sort of behavior. And countries really are lobbying and running around in Brussels in order not to to be on this list, but. To be honest with you, I'd like to give the thumbs up for the uh, journalists yeah. behind that yeah. and the power and the allocations and the money that the media outlets that they have put in order to facilitate the work of the journalists behind it. Thank so, you so much. This is what we need and this is sort of commitment of the media mm-hmm. in order to really preserve our rights uh, as citizens and make sure that we know and make sure that there are ways, whether in the regulators or the, the commission, to stop it and to expose these uh, these countries and these uh, very wealthy people that they just want to be wealthy. So these are the people that we need to mm-hmm. give them the thumbs up. And so that is a special shout out to our colleagues at Süddeutsche Zeitung, the German newspaper that received all of the cachet of documents, and others who've always been involved in these projects, which include The Guardian. And the BBC as well. There you go. There's actually 97 media organizations, many of them from Europe, but also globally. So, thumbs up. Uh, Now, it's time for our Dear Politico advice session. We've got a quite special one this week. I'm I'm not sure how you're going to react when I read this one out. The subject line of the email was the male side of the coin, and it came from abundance. Uh, So, uh, I I can't tell you who's writing this letter. Dear Politico, I would like to point out the other side of the coin here. Women are also not all innocent and do use their sexuality to gain advances in the workplace. When they do not succeed or get rejected, they will turn things around, fabricate stories, and use the harassment card to ruin their victims, all capitals. The common method in Brussels amongst women is that they, quote, play around with several men as long as they find the one that is best paid and has the highest position. Often they do this for several years or as long as they think their looks still have worth on the market. This point usually comes around the age of 40. It's the main reason why they stay single for many years. Then he goes on to describe a complicated code, which sounds a little bit like dating to me, um, of how women and men engage with each other, and then says that the ambiguity of the process can be used against men. And if in any part of this rubbish something goes wrong for the woman, she can always state she was right at the beginning, that she's not interested and can complain against the unfortunate guy. Second, when talking about harassment, we should not forget that male officials are often harassed and bullied at the institutions. It seems as though high-ranking officials get a course in the methods of how to completely ruin a male official's professional and private life. I'll stop there. What's your reaction? I think abundance, is that what we're going to call him, uh, sounds very frustrated. Um, maybe he's been accused of sexual harassment before. Uh, he also has to, ha, seems to have quite a dim view of women. Um, I mean, a lot of what he's just described, I would call dating, consensual dating. Um, but I suppose in a way he's struck on something that... Uh, was remarked on in the UK. There was this list of of MPs and and staff members going around, some of which ha- who whom had sexually harassed people, and other people who had had actual consensual relationships. Okay, I'm going to spell it out to you. Harassment is is harassment. It's a power play. It's when someone receives unwanted attention from you of a sexual nature. If two consenting people are flirting with each other at work, that is not sexual harassment. Um, and I think what 
you've you've definitely blurred the, blurred the lines here. Uh, but I think from from a female point of view, uh, it's very clear what harassment is. Um, and I don't think there is 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 that much of a gray area. Uh, if you make a, an unwanted like co- come on to a woman, you know very quickly, and then you should immediately stop. And I don't think you can complain about a two-minute conversation in which you then took that feedback and then didn't do anything. Harassment is is usually a lot more, yeah, it's it's debasing, humiliating. And then also, I think that this man has possibly been jilted by someone who maybe may or may not be a social climber. But that is up to women. Men do that as well. Everybody, you know, wants well. Some people, this is the way they look at dating. They want the best person for them, and some people like power. Uh, so I think this man may have been jilted at Le- some point in the past exactly. and is very angry. Are these um, alleged behaviours of women uh, people who are just playing the market like any man would in the dating market or are they manipulators like he's suggesting? I, I don't see any problem here. I mean, we're free. We're free to date and, and have options and see men and women from different countries, from different categories, uh, institutions. So the problem is that this is a women thing and this is a male thing as well uh, you can see some some of the males they are dating and they are going out and we never uh, with several women and, and brussels is so small and you can you can detect that so there's literally not a problem in my in my point of view but i think this abundance gentleman unfortunately i think he had a very horrible experience that the lady just uh, left him for his another colleague and that uh, he's putting it in this category of harassment and uh, this is something happens on daily basis if a woman is being nice and giving you compliments about your tie or your socks well uh, you give us uh, as well compliments about our hair and our dresses or our shoes so this is being nice to each other being human to one another and not every single word we're gonna transmit it into harassment harassment as alva just said it's something persistent it's something really unwanted something you would really feel uncomfortable to receive and let's let's not confuse that in order just to uh, justify she didn't pick you and there's one other question which might be a cultural difference issue here uh, because he seems to be a bit hung up on the idea that women might go after several men at once and I know that and I don't think that's a man-woman thing I think that in some places you know it's more typical to date one person at a time and some people get freaked out at the idea that you might be going on dates drink dates with three different people at once whereas for Americans that's really common and because Brussels is such a melting pot sort of intersection of things do you think that sometimes those clashes um, affect people's reactions in, in, in that kind of situation? Yeah, but I even think that's within cultures. Do you know, there's I know people um, who, you know, they come from cultures where this kind of Tinder dating, etc. is very prevalent, but they themselves don't want to date more than one person at the same time. So, I mean, sometimes it's just an individual person thing, just like what we were talking about, like these climbers, people who who want to get to kind of the upper echelons of, of uh, I don't know, suppose the Brussels bubble by dating. I mean, I am not one of those people, but I know people who are. But that's that's a personal preference. It's, you know, there is I don't I don't even think it's massively a cultural difference. Sometimes it's a, a personal preference. Uh, but I did want to say one thing about the last thing that he said, which was he was talking about bullying. Uh, and the fact that very high-ranking officials, men and women, do that. And that is true. I don't think that men have... 
a monopoly on bullying in the workplace in Brussels. I definitely don't think that. I I know a lot of people who have been bullied by by women equally. Uh, Maybe it doesn't have a sexual undertone, but it is the case that sometimes people don't have good management skills uh, and they intimidate rather than try and support and and make their their staff flourish. So I do think that he's hit on a very good point there. Um, you know, this isn't this isn't a gender thing in the workplace bullying, uh, and and people need to to be better managers. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, both of you. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us so that you never have to look again. We just come directly to your smartphone or to your laptop. And podcasting is a team effort. So a big shout out, as always, to Rosie Belson, Andrew Gray, and Wei Dong Lin. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.